In this episode, Tina Cover spoke about the initiative Translators Aloud and about the French novel she translated, The Postcard. Tina Cover, the translator of over 30 books from French, including Anne Beres' The Postcard, Negar Javadi's Disoriental, and Emily Prophet's Blue. Her work has won the Albertin Prize, the French Voices Award, the Lambda Literary Award, and has been shortlisted for the U.S. National Book Award, the International Dublin Literary Award, the Pen Translation Prize, the Warwick Prize for Women in Translation, the Oxford Widenfield Translation Prize, and the Scott Moncrief Prize. Tina leads literary translation workshop for the American Literary Translators Association. and master classes in literary translation for Durham University. She is also the co-founder of Translators Aloud, a YouTube channel that features literary translators reading from their own work along with her friend and translator Charlie Coombe. The novel postcard can be purchased using the link given in the show notes. Good evening. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. So when did this uh, interest in literature reading and all start? I've always been a great reader, a voracious reader. I've been reading since a really young age. I was 3 years old when I started reading and it has just it's always been a great love of mine and I've read I've always loved to read very broadly. So not just modern literature, not just classics, not any one genre but all kinds of books. When I thought of a literary translation as combining two of the things that I'm so passionate about being reading and writing and languages it was a perfect combination of the two so when did this interest in translation start i actually started out as a just doing commercial translation legal translation i that's i think that is the way many people make their start i think a way of becoming familiar with the way with your own working habit and the way you use language and just the literary part of it came a bit later on as really just something that i wanted to try for myself my my first book i did on my own initiative i actually self published oh that's wonderful <laughs> okay so that was the black city that was the very first one and it's a 19th century novel by a french author called georges sand who a lot of people are familiar with she wrote under a male name she was a very prolific novelist and i'm a big fan of her books and the more prosaic reason for choosing one of her books for my first project was that it was in the public domain so i didn't have to worry about rights so yeah i just translated it really to see what it would be like and see if i could do it and i self published it with a company in canada and it was through that book that i managed to get myself a literary agent who then sold the book to a publisher in new york and that was the start of my career and that was almost 20 years ago so it's been been a long time now it didn't really make very much of a a splash it was published by a fairly small very a fairly small publisher 
I still occasionally will see a mention of it somewhere here and there on the internet where people people who are fans of the author have come across it and they've really enjoyed it. I'm really, I really I like it that my first book was one of hers because she, the author, also was just such an interesting historical character. No, we have spoken to almost, uh, I guess, about uh, 45 translators in the last few months. You are the first translator who self-published it. That's interesting. Yeah, I think part of it was timing, I think, because when I first, when I did that, it was 2000, when I first had the idea, I think it was 2003. And that was really during the time when self-publishing was, I think, at the height of its popularity. And so I think if you came into the industry before then or after then, maybe it wouldn't have been such a, such a popular thing. It's interesting when you invited me to do this podcast, I went back and I had a look through the book just to refresh my memory about translating it. And it's, it's been, it's been so long. So it was really quite an experience to look back through it. And the thing that I, I can tell that it's my own work. And I think for my first try, it, it was pretty good actually, but I can definitely see places where I think I was thinking a bit too hard. And so one thing that I hopefully have learned since then is to relax and let the words flow, let the language flow through me rather than just, yeah, trying to wrestle a particular expression in, into a, a small frame. But yeah, it's, it's, I started, I think, as I meant to go on with just a book that I really loved and just felt the joy then and continue to feel the joy of using language as a kind of an artistic medium like clay or paint and just molding molding it the way that that I need to and want to and in a way that I hope is both beautiful and accurate. Since then how many books you might have translated approximate number? It's somewhere over 30 now. It's I think the exact number is 34. And actually, for the first, first, I would say really the first 10 years or more of my career, I was doing, I wasn't doing a lot of books. I would do one maybe a year or one every year and a half. So I would say at least half of those books I've done just since 2018. Really, that was when my career moved up to a, a new level was 2018. As far as approaching the translation is concerned, the project, um, I'm talking about, uh, uh, I'm asking about craft-wise, right? You might have had a workflow, translation workflow. What was it then and what is it now? So my actual working method really has never changed. And I am one of those translators who does not read the book first. So I just literally sit down with a blank word document and I open the book to page one and I just start translating. I tend to not go through a lot of drafts. I like to try to get it as close to as close to perfect as I can the first time round. So I usually do one main, just one draft, and then I basically go over that one time and obviously make any changes that I need to make and smooth things out. And sometimes there'll be something that was translated early in the book that needs to be changed in light of something that happens later in the book. So I'll go back and make sure everything's 
consistent and smooth, but that has really always been my working process. Any specific writing tools or software that you use for translation? No, I probably use the same online dictionaries as any professional translator. We have, there's several that we all use, which are word reference and, and reverso. Those are always helpful, especially to confirm when you think you're right about something, but you want to be absolutely sure. But really, no, I don't use any translation software. I just stick with good old. Yeah, Google Docs are also very powerful, actually. Very, very powerful. Some of uh, my friends use it. Writer friends. Oh, I see. Uh, no, I just use Microsoft Word. Yeah, and actually, I think probably in a situation where you're doing a co-translation, that would be incredibly helpful. Because I do use Google Docs for my YouTube channel, which I know we're going to talk about later. But I have a partner. We created the channel together. And so we use Google Docs quite a lot for that. But for my own translations, it's just Word. What is the best part of translation that you enjoy most? Well, the part that's most most satisfying for me creatively is feeling that I've that I've managed to produce something that's both an accurate rendering of the original in English, but something that has beauty of its own. I really try to endow my work with as much beauty of language as I can, because I think there's a conception out there, and I believe a misconception, that things are lost in translation. And I really don't agree with that. I think a translation can be equally beautiful in in its own right, and I definitely always try to make sure that's the case. And when I feel like I've done that, it's an incredibly satisfying feeling. Now, are you into full-time translations now? or I have done it full-time in the past, but I, I actually work for a university here in England part-time. And it's partly for the steady, little bit of steady income, because as I'm sure you will have heard, we translators don't exactly make <laughs> huge amounts of money. And obviously, we do this work for the love of the work, although it, it certainly would be nicer if translators were paid more. But so I, I have that that other job for financial reasons, but also because it's just a way it gets me out of the house. It's, it's a team environment as opposed to translation, which can be incredibly solitary. And it's just a different way of using my brain. And I find it a bit actually relaxing at times. It's an administrative job and I do a little bit of teaching as well in French translation. And I find those things just give my brain a rest from the deeper processes that in, that translation involves. Because that can be, can be very draining work, actually. Yeah, it's very intense, very mentally intense work. So you started with the translating technical and legal documents, right? So coming from back that background into literary translations, serious literary translation, in what way you think it affected your literary translation? Part of it is just simply learning to work in a way that will allow you to meet your deadlines. You learn your pace of working and your speed of working, and that, that tends to increase as you get more comfortable. And so I think part of what it did for me was just it helped me become familiar with my own working habits. But also, there's a surprising variety of 
of language and terminology that you find in commercial and legal translation, particularly if you do. I did websites. I did a whole lot of work for a museum in France. It was a, his, a, a museum of history and archaeology. So there was a lot of interesting terminology involved there. There was some art involved. For a long time, I was translating the little informational signs that go next to each exhibit or piece of art in this museum. So I did a lot of that kind of stuff. And you gain a really a much wider variety of experience and vocabulary than one might expect from that type of work. I think really any type of translation, even if if you're an aspiring literary translator, but you're doing the commercial work and you feel frustrated because you think it's maybe not creative, it can be surprisingly creative. And it, it definitely is good experience for doing literary work, whether it seems that way or not. Now, how close do you think the experience of writing is to the experience of translation? Well, I think they're very, I think they're very close, actually. And I'm sure you will have spoken to translators who are also, yeah, novelists or writers in their own right. And I think it partly depends on the translator. And depend and depends on their process, because I know some translators prefer to be in constant contact with their author, and so it's much less of a solitary process. There are translators who go through multiple readings of the book before they start translating it, and I think that would make it. I think that would actually further differentiate that the translating process from the writing process then, if you're already extremely familiar with the entire plot and you know what's coming. But for me, because I don't read the book first, and because I tend to work very much in kind of my own bubble, I think it's very much like the original creative process. And in fact, I try to make it as much like the original creative process as I can. I prefer not to have a lot of contact or even any contact with my authors, if possible, because I, I like to just be alone with, with the text. I like to be alone with my own thoughts and my own process and not have any kind of outside interference, whether that's well-meaning it doesn't matter. It's not about whether it's well-meaning or not. It's just about withdrawing into my own my own mind um, with the text. And I think that is very much what happens with a writer. It's a very intimate and private process, isn't it? You just it's you alone with the words that you're generating. And then the other part of it for me also is not reading the book beforehand. So I I experience the emotions really as I'm translating. So in that, I suppose I'm I feel the same way the author did when they first had something exciting happen or killed off a character or had something wonderful happen. You get that adrenaline rush or the sadness or the joy. And I feel those things very viscerally as I'm translating, which it hopefully comes out in the finished product as well. That sort of spontaneous emotion, I think, um, is what I'm trying to duplicate by not familiarizing myself with the text beforehand. You seem to enjoy that uh, gradual discovery process. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. It, it can be, it can be a, actually very emotional process, but I think that's what comes out on the page and should come out on the page, I think. In terms of impact, 
it should feel as real to you as it felt to the author when they were first writing it and as it feels to the reader when they're first discovering. You have been in the field for the last uh, two decades, right? 20 years. So what are the changes that you have seen in the business side of translations? It's so different now. It's so different now. And I think in a good way. In in I cannot think of a negative aspect in terms of changes. When I first started out, it was almost impossible to just pitch your 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 translation project to a publisher. You had to go through an agent. There were very few small presses that were publishing translation when I started out. So it was mostly the larger publishing houses. And as we know, unfortunately, a lot of the time, it's the big publishers don't have much time for translation, or they really have to be convinced that it's a good idea and a profitable idea to take on a, a book in translation. Where, Whereas now you, you've got all of these incredible small presses that are in the publishing game for the love of translated literature. They're open-minded, they're daring, they are willing to, in many cases, to listen to just a cold pitch from a translator and consider that pitch with an open mind. So that's one enormous improvement since I started is just this wonderful landscape of small presses that we have. And obviously, social media didn't really exist when I started out. And now it's if you're on Twitter or Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever, you're really only one degree of separation from any number of commissioning editors or scouts or agents or even editors in chief of publishing houses. And it's much easier to make contact with people and become familiar with what's the work that's out there and the people that are out there working and the sense of community that that creates is actually another change because when I first began I was in Denver as we said earlier and that's smack in the middle of the United States nowhere near New York nowhere near London nowhere near any of the sort of places that are hubs for literature and the arts. And I may choose to be isolated in my working habits now, but I was genuinely isolated back then. And so it was almost impossible for me to really be part of the scene. Whereas now, social media and video calling and all that makes all that possible. And just there's what a third thing that I would say that is, is really important now compared to when I first started out. And that is the, the visibility of translators and translation. It's an area that we still have a long way to go in, obviously, and a lot of work to do. But compared to 2003, 2004, when I would say it's now more common to have a translator's name on the cover, at least with these small press publications, and you have a lot more prizes than you used to have, and these prizes are getting more attention from the press. Translated books are being reviewed more often in the press, with the translator being named a lot of the time, although not always, as that's an area that we need to work on. But all these things are hugely different than they were 20 years ago, and much improved. Now, tell us about your initiative, Translators Hello. You run it with Charlie Coombe, right? 
Yes, yes. Charlie Combe, Charlotte Combe, who is a prize-winning literary translator from the French and Spanish. So this was, it was just a couple months into the 2020 lockdown. And I had thought that maybe I might put a video of myself reading from one of my books online and wondered if anybody would be interested in seeing it. I just tweeted about it and got actually quite an enthusiastic response, not just from people saying, oh, sure, I'd love to, I'd love to see that. But from a lot of other translators saying, I've had the same thought. I've wondered if anybody would be interested in watching these, re watching me read. And so Charlie was the one who said, we should, we should set something up. We should create a place where translators can, um, you know, can have the limelight. And so literally that same day, we created Translators Allowed. It's a YouTube channel. Um, and uh, we, it, we just spotlight um, literary translators uh, reading from all different languages and into other languages from English. So they read from their own work. They, they, they give introductions to the book. They, they read poetry as well. We've had just an incredible variety of readings submitted. We have over 500 readings up at this point. And there's some translators who do multiple ones, but it's well over 400 translators who have participated from all over the world, something like 50 languages. And we've had collaborations with publishers, with translators associations, with publishing associations too, new books in German and the Yiddish Book Center in New York. So it's just been this amazing, this amazing outcome that we did not expect to be greeted with this much, this much warmth and this much support. And we're really proud of it. It's, it's a great place, I think, for people to discover translation if they're not familiar with this incredible wealth of international literature that's out there. And if you're already a translation fan, you can, you can find your next, the next book you're going to read. And also we have a, a dedicated playlist for books that are seeking a publisher. And so that actually has been a really good tool as well that we've been told has been quite helpful as part of the pitching process. So translators who are pitching a project, because that's all done online now anyway, and it's often very informal, it's just an exchange of emails, what they can do easily is just say to a publisher, just click this link and you'll see me reading an excerpt from the book. It gives that familiarity of seeing the translator's face and hearing their voice, knowing how excited they are about the project. It gives a real kind of human element, I think, to the pitch. And it's really gratifying. We've heard it. It has definitely resulted in some contracts. When we started this uh, few months ago, interviews of translators, we had done first few interviews. Then later I came across uh, the channel. I believe about five months ago, right? Uh, from then we started, uh, you know, requesting translators to narrate few passages in both the source and uh, destination languages, like you do. Well, that's fantastic. That's amazing. That 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 makes me so happy, actually. And I know I I know Charlie will feel the same way. That's because that is exactly why we started the channel is to just spread the love of translation. So it's working. So I think that's fantastic. 
They, some people send us a message on Twitter because we're quite active on Twitter. That was where we first started. And that's how we do. That's how we share most of our videos. We share all of them on Twitter. We, it's our main kind of social media outlet. We have a Translators Allowed account on Twitter. And our, our direct messaging is always open there. But we also just have an email address of translatorsallowed at gmail.com. And we're, we're always delighted to get new contributions. Really, all any translator who wants to participate has to do is just uh, reach out and make contact. We're always, yeah, always delighted. And we're always especially excited to to have readings from the less translated languages as well. That's one another main kind of ambition of our channel is to increase the visibility of of less translated languages. So I should say non, mostly non-European languages and and also translators who are non-white. What another thing we do that we're actually incredibly proud of and this is the, I think next summer will be the third one. Every summer we fund a bursary for the sum, translation summer school that the University of East Anglia puts on. That's the British Center for Literary Translation at East Anglia. And we fund a bursary for a translator of color. So a non-white, an ethnically diverse translator. And we hope to, anybody who supports our channel is really supporting that endeavor of ours as well. We occasionally have fundraising efforts and we have merchandise. We have mugs and t-shirts and, and tote bags and various things that we sell with the Translators Allowed logo on them. And all the money that we raise from that goes directly toward that bursary. Coming to your work, uh, I think you already mentioned about Black City, right? The Black City, initially, and the disorienting. So can you please say a few words about, uh, about the themes and the author? The book marked a kind of turning point for me professionally. It was nominated for several awards and won a couple of them. And it, it took me up to the next level, professionally speaking, with the number of books I was asked to translate. And my visibility got a bit, rose a bit, which, which was really gratifying after having been working at it for so long to finally get a little bit of name recognition. But the book itself is just, it's so special. And just in case for anybody who hasn't read it, the book is by an author called Negar Javadi, who is an Iranian French author. She is a screenwriter and director for television and film in France. And she wrote the book based on, partly based on her own life and her own family. She was born in Tehran and her parents were very active politically and very free thinking and outspoken. And because of that, after the 1980 revolution, you know, they found themselves in, in danger from the new regime. So they emigrated to, to Paris in 1980. And so she grew up in Paris from the age of 10. And the, so the, there's definitely a large part of the book that's based on the characters are partly based on her own family, the parents partly on her own parents. And it's just, it's a beautiful multi-generational story about her Iranian family and heritage and what it means to, to leave your home country behind 
and make a life in a new country, what it means to immerse yourself in a new culture and, and learn a new language and how that changes you. And, and as somebody who's moved countries several times in my own life, although not under any kind of difficult circumstances, but still, a lot of that resonated deeply with me, her, that the sense um, of not completely belonging anywhere. But anyway, it's a it's an incredibly beautiful book, and I was just deeply honored to be the one asked to translate it. I would say it's it's possibly my favorite, or it was definitely up there among my favorite books that I've ever translated. And the fact that it's such a personal story, just incredibly honored to be trusted with these these retellings of, of people's lives. And that actually does seem to be a bit of a recurring theme in a lot of the books I've done. I translated another book a few years ago called Little Girl on the Ice Flow, which was also a very personal story of a one woman's experience of and survival of sexual assault as a child. And again, to be entrusted with bringing, bringing her words into another language, something so deeply intimate and personal was something that was I felt really profoundly moved by. And that's also the theme of my latest translation to be published, which is which is the postcard. And I know you read the postcard, but that again, it's a personal story, a family story. And those always they have special meaning for me and make me even more anxious to to tell them, to retell them, I should say, the the right way and the correct way. French that is uh, spoken in North Africa in French colonies and again in other parts of Europe and uh, even in UK, right? Are there any variations, local variations, dialects? Is there any change? And uh, what is the kind of challenge that uh, is posed to translators when you are translating French? Definitely. French, like any other language, obviously, it's different wherever it's spoken. I can't say that I have any experience translating from the North North African sort of francophone French, but I did translate a book in, oh gosh, it was 20, I think it must have been sort of 2019, called Older Brother. That was written by the main character in, in that book is a Franco, a young Franco-Syrian set of brothers, like young adults. They're, they're in their, I suppose they're in their twenties and thirties, but they've grown up in a very, a rough suburb of Paris, what we might, what we might call the ghetto or the hood, the tough. And so their way of speaking is just incredibly different to standard French, just so much slang mixed in there and so much vernacular and French. That's been influenced by Arabic, and it was just a very particular, you know, way of writing and way of speaking. So it's a fantastic book. Uh, Mahir Guven is the author, and I so I really struggled with that one. It was blood, sweat, and tears to convey that language because obviously I'm about as far from a young Franco-Syrian man as you can get, and so I was so afraid that it would come out sounding artificial, the language. And so I did actually a lot of deep diving into French pop culture and like message boards and that kind of thing from that kind of that subculture, that type of, of pop culture 
And I think it came out okay in the end, but it was extremely challenging, extremely challenging. The stuff like that really makes you rethink of your own use of English, and it makes you see how how much English has. It's very plastic. It's always changing. It's always being changed by whoever it uses. And I think we, or sorry, whoever uses it. And I think we think of lang of language. Of English as being one language, one static language, and it is absolutely not that. So translating a book like that, yeah, it just opens your eyes, really does. It's one of the things I love about being a translator. I learn, I learn so much from every new book. Introduce us to the book uh, postcard, which I really love, by the way. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, the the postcard. So the postcard postcard was just released uh, in English in uh, the spring of this year in the U.S. and a bit later uh, over on this side of the Atlantic, um, just this fall. And uh, it was a finalist for the uh, Goncourt uh, Prize in France when it came out. Um, it's another semi autobiographical story. You might call it autofiction, or you might use the word that the author herself and Burress uses, which is a true novel, she calls it. So it's the story of, of a, a postcard that her family received in 2003, uh, a mysterious postcard that had nothing written on it except four names. It came to her comes to her family home, her mother's home, and the names are the names of four family members who were killed in the Holocaust. And obviously, I don't want to give too much, but the book that from then on becomes a family history as the narrator, who is also our author, Amber Est, writing as herself, goes on this journey of discovery into these relatives who she never knew. These are her great-grandparents and, or is it her great-grandparents, and who would have been her her great aunt and great uncle young who were very young when they were killed so she discovers the the lives of her family members who you know they go on this cross country european odyssey russia to latvia they spend actually some time in palestine they end up in france where they settle and unfortunately it is from france that they are deported by the nazis so we have this story inspired by the, the receipt of the postcard and the quest sort of to find out who sent the postcard, which is the mystery of the novel. It becomes a detective story as well. Who sent this postcard? Who wrote it? And why? And what does it mean? And then the, the parallel sort of plot that's happening as well is that Anne Barrest is discovering her own Jewish identity because she's been raised really without religion. And so as she's looking so deeply into her family history, she begins to think about the fact that she herself is Jewish and what it means to her and how it's affected her evolution from child to adult, even despite the fact that she wasn't raised with the religion in any formal sense of the word. It's an incredibly rich, multi-layered, story. I think really, honestly, it has something for everyone. It has the mystery. It has the personal journey. It has the family saga. You actually learn a lot of World War II history reading it, a lot of Holocaust history. You really come away from it feeling like you've had, that you've gone on a journey yourself, I think, a journey of personal 
growth and discovery. So it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable book. And I feel so honored that I was the one asked to translate it. Over the last few decades, uh, there's a lot of literature produced on Holocaust, fiction, nonfiction, fiction, let's say. I understand uh, every family that has gone through the experience, it is different in a way. Uh, but what do you think is the unique contribution of postcard in that sense to the Holocaust literature? For one thing, the number of people that were murdered in the Holocaust is so staggering that it's impossible really to comprehend the loss of 10 million lives and 6 million of those being Jewish lives. The number is so vast that it's hard to see it as anything other than a number. But what Anne does in the postcard is she introduces us to to her family whom we can then get to know quite well, really. These are the Rabinovich family is a wonderful family full of personality, full of life and love and happiness and humor and ambition and longing. And, and we really do come to feel like we know them. And so when we lose them so senselessly and cruelly, it's really a, it's a body blow. It's a gut punch. And I think the gift, really, of, of their lives and the gift of loving them that we are given, hopefully, goes some way toward people realizing that every single person that died in the Holocaust was also a warm, living, breathing, loving human being. And every single loss was an individual tragedy and an individual act of inhumanity. And that, that maybe that would go some way toward our determination that such a thing would never be able to happen again. And obviously, given what's happening in the world today, I think it becomes extra poignant because we in some way have to wonder if we've made any progress at all. But I think it's the humanizing. Yeah, it's the humanizing aspect, deeply humanizing aspect of the postcard and of the Rabinoviches. It's an incredible and profound gift that we've all been given. A, a book like The Postcard, uh, it, despite how tragic it is and how difficult parts of it are, I think, to read, I think it's also very uplifting because really this family has been brought back to life in a way by us. Uh, knowing their names and hearing their stories and even seeing their faces, this beautiful photo of Noemi Rabinovich on the cover of the book. And she's so beautiful and, and we all know her face now. And But also the new kind of life that Anne and her children have been given by learning about about their family. You want to believe it, it bodes well for the future. You, you hope that it will anyway. But yeah, I definitely think that reading it, reading the postcard, against the backdrop of everything that has been happening just over the last few months. Definitely gives it an added dimension, yeah. The people who are suffering, their race may change, the color of skin may change, but the agony that they go through, I think it's irreparable, irreparable. The book that I was meant talking about earlier, older, disoriental too. Again, you have a revolution. You have so many unnecessary deaths. You have, you have 
oppression, this, this terrible oppression that the Ayatollah's regime imposed and that Iran has never really come out from under the shadow of. And then you have the, the difficulty, the cruelty, really, of how these immigrants were treated when they first arrived in Paris. And you have a similar experience with these Syrian immigrants in Older Brother, and one of the characters is a nurse in the Syrian civil war. So you have the, again, tragedy and bloodshed and, and people killing each other who have very much more in common than they have to be in conflict over. I think all we can do is focus on the glimmers of light among all, all, amid all the darkness because they are there, but I think, I think they're very small. And I think focusing on them is the only way to get out of bed in the morning, isn't it? And uh, I, I felt uh, when I read a postcard, it makes great material for a film, actually. Anne Marest is a, a screenwriter by trade, and I think that really comes out in the book. It's very, everything is very clearly drawn. There, there's no extraneous information. Yeah, every character is clearly established. The pacing, I think, of the book is, is perfect. I haven't heard anything about a film adaptation, but I would not be surprised if that comes in the future. Before we finish uh, the conversation, I want you to be allowed and <laughs> read a couple of paragraphs which you like. I'm going to read a little bit and then skip a bit and read just, but it, I think it all, it'll flow together. Ephraim had devoted the bulk of his attention to the citizenship application for himself and his family, and at last he submitted the necessary papers to the relevant authorities, including a letter of reference from the writer Joseph Kessel. The police commissioner's opinion was favorable. Well assimilated, speaks French fluently, all information in good order. We'll be French soon, Ephraim promised Emma. For now, the family was listed on their application as Palestinians of Russian origin by the government. Ephraim was confident that he knew it would be several weeks before they could expect an official response. In the meantime, he'd already chosen a new name, one that he thought rolled off the tongue like that of a hero in some 19th century novel, Eugène Rivanche. Sometimes he repeated it aloud to himself as he stood in front of the bathroom mirror. Eugène Rivoche, it's elegant, don't you think? He asked Miriam. How did you choose it, Papa? Well, I'll tell you. Have you ever read anywhere, maybe in a genealogy book, that we're cousins of the Rothschilds? No, Miriam answered, laughing. Ah, well then, I had to find a name with the same initials I have now, so I wouldn't need all my shirts and handkerchiefs re-monogrammed. Ephraim felt sure that the doors of Paris were about to be thrown wide open for him. He stepped up his efforts to spread the word about the baking machine he'd invented, filing patents with the French and German ministries of commerce under both names, Ephraim Rabinovich and Eugène Rivoche. In life, you will find, son, he explained to Jacques, that you have to know how to anticipate things. Hold on to that. Being one step ahead of the game is more useful than being a genius. A few weeks later, the Rabinovich family's application for naturalization was denied. Ephraim was stunned and quickly assailed by pains in his chest and esophagus. He tried desperately to understand the reasons for the refusal. He was advised to wait six months and resubmit a more complete application. 
Now Ephraim began to see government agents hiding behind every lamppost, waiting to pounce on any doubts about the completeness of his assimilation. He turned his back on anything that might evoke his foreign roots. He'd been embarrassed to say his name before. Now he tried to avoid uttering it altogether. If he heard Russian or Yiddish or even German spoken in public, he crossed to the other side of the street. Emma was no longer allowed to do her shopping on the Rue des Rosiers, and Ephraim devoted himself to banishing his Russian accent and speaking with more sophistication like his children. But a Yiddishkeit wind would blow through their home in that summer of 1938. Nachman was traveling from Palestine to spend some time with his grandchildren. He doesn't look like a Jew, sighed Ephraim, watching his father disembark at the port in Normandy. He looks like a hundred Jews. So that's, that's that passage. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much for the conversation and uh, best wishes to you and uh, Charlie Coombe for doing such a wonderful work on Translators. It's a great initiative. Oh, thank, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it.